playing the biggest rock bands of all time. Dirty Radio Classics. Coming up next, it's this, that, and the other. This, that, and the other. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk from That Metal Show and Sirius XM Radio's Trunk Nation. And you are listening to this, that, and the other on Dirty Radio Classics. It's really cool for me to hear that people are getting turned on to new artists through them coming on this show. Again, it's why I started doing this, which will be 40 years next year. It, it It's um is to share stuff with people. I mean, that's, you know, I did an interview yesterday. I was interviewed by my friend, Troy Patrick Farrell for his radio show. And, you know, he was asking me in the interview, he's like, why, you know, why did you start doing this 40 years ago? Did you just want to be on the radio? I said, no, it wasn't about being on the radio. It never was. It was not being, but never about trying to be on the radio, on TV, anything. It, it was just about being a kid and loving this music and wanting to be able to have platforms to tell more people about it. And radio was just another way to share it. I wrote about it. I sold it in a record store. I worked in a record company. I mean, I did, it was just all about how many ways can I connect people with it. And radio just was the one that continued to to go for me for that I never stopped doing. So it's very, very, very important to me, and it's very rewarding to me when I hear from people who say, hey, I heard an artist on this show, even though we don't actually play music, just talking about it, making people aware of it, is a big thing. He is the only man to ever ace a Rorschach test. Every time he goes for a swim, dolphins appear. Alien abductors have asked him to probe them. If he were to give you directions, you'd never get lost, and you'd arrive at least five minutes early. His legend precedes him, the way lightning precedes thunder. He is... Troy Patrick Farrell. The most interesting man in the world. Five, four, three, two, one, zero... Let's start the party. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Welcome to This, That, and the Other with your host, a true rock god. Come on, man. Troy Patrick Farrell. Now get ready because here comes the host. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Troy Patrick Farrell. All right, kids. It is uh, the phrase that pays. We have an interview. Eddie Trunk, Sirius XM Faction Talk 103, that metal show, acclaimed artist, and newly dubbed by myself as the last rock and roll historian. <laughs> Shirts are being printed. I'm also a uh, heritage bands, heritage H-A-I-R. Eddie won't like that, though. He doesn't like hair band uh, as, as a moniker to describe the rock and roll of the 80s. Anyway, let's see if he's prepared. It, it, it's not as if he didn't do enough talking today, but fortunately, he was off most of the week. So let's see what happens. Let's see if we can get him on the phone. Oh, a little FaceTime audio. Two minutes late here. And if not, we'll spin more music. 
he might be taking a pre-interview nap. Or he might, maybe he's pranking me. Hello. Eddie Trunk, how you doing? Troy, how are you, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well for the shape I'm in. Uh, Mr. Eddie Trunk, you are on this, that, and the other radio show, DirtyRadio.fm, Channel 2, Dirty Radio Classics. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's as if you don't talk enough. You figured you'd come on one of these uh, low-rent radio shows where everybody in there... (laughs) Their brothers got some rig in their garage or their bed, their spare bedroom or whatever, and they're doing radio or whatever you want to call it. Uh, how you doing? I'm good, man. And uh, look, I appreciate you having me. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, we go back, so I wanted to certainly do it for you. But it is, it is, um, it's great to see so many people who are doing some level of broadcast, but doing doing six live shows a week. Uh, sometimes I don't have the the window or opportunity to do it all the time myself but i i appreciate you and anybody else that thinks enough of me to ask me to be a guest so thanks for having me very cool you know during the the pandemic era a lot of uh people like yourself and a lot of artists you know they were collaborating and they were starting their own podcasts and video shows and a lot of them have kind of fallen off now because they've got other things to do i haven't got the message that the pandemic's over so i'm still (laughs) i'm still holed up in the house doing this uh, little show but i've actually been doing this for five years and it has always been uh, a live show and while it is not you know on a broadcast network like SiriusXM or on some of the other big outlets as well as any terrestrial radio station although I was on Real FM radio here in Las Vegas true story and the guy that uh, was broadcasting it from his garage had one of these like antennas that you order from Amazon and he was poaching a signal from a church and he he, he almost got in big <laughs> trouble from the <laughs> from the FCC so I have actually been on real radio before uh, the guy almost got arrested but uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on uh, these sort of you know there's podcast there's so many new phrases now. There's terrestrial, then there's satellite, there's podcast. And, you know, what are, What am I doing here when I'm in a live format? But a, a lot of people call, well, what I'm doing is you're really just a podcaster. You just happen to be on live. You didn't go to school. You don't have any education. What are your thoughts on all these people coming out of the woodwork saying we're now radio host? Well, I mean, it's just like it's just like anything. I mean, there's if you're a band right now, you don't need a label. There's there's documented examples of bands that still don't have record labels that are quite successful. So the, the floodgates are wide open in that regard. The challenge is standing out from the crowd and building an audience. I had a conversation with a listener earlier today on, on my radio show about somebody talking about documentaries. And I love documentaries. It's like, well, now it's getting hard to find them because anybody can make these documentaries, but what's the distribution? How do people know they're there? Are they behind a paywall? Are they free and clear? Are they just, hey, check me out? Are they advertising-based? What's the, the model? And the same goes for you know anything outside of traditional radio. It's like, okay, some of it's real good, some of it's not so good. But how do you build an audience? It, it's all about how do you get an audience. It's not about what your delivery mechanism is anymore. It's about do people can you can you get actually people tuning in or clicking and listening and viewing? And it's all about those numbers. So you know, I really look at it like it could be easily. You could easily say, and somebody like me who's been in radio next year, 40 years, easily say, oh, that stuff's not valid and those aren't real platforms or whatever. I I don't think that's the case at all. 
I mean, look at a guy like Joe Rogan who's getting like hundreds of millions of dollars off of a podcast. So, and by the way, has a massive audience. Sure. So it's totally doable. I don't really think, I don't really look at what the delivery system is because there's a lot of different delivery systems, whether it's music, broadcasting, movies, or what have you. It's just a question of, is is it good enough? Is it unique enough? Is it different enough? Is there enough behind it to actually build audience? And then when you have provable audience numbers, then you can really do anything. You can get better guests and you can also make some money because then you can start selling advertising. So it's just about how how much traction there is for something, I think more so than how it's being delivered. Yeah, you know, something interesting and, uh, you know, one of your uh, peers at SiriusXM, Howard Stern, you know, especially during the pandemic, uh, you know, would kind of look down on podcasts because anybody and their brother can do them. And, and granted, you know, the quality the quantity was very great and the quality was probably not, you know, because people are just getting little boards and they're just figuring it out. They're not broadcasters, but they maybe try and emulate their favorite host or try and do bits or variety or interviews, whatever it is. And interestingly enough, uh, in the in the third quarter of this year, Sirius XM is actually, along with Spotify, is considered one of the top podcast networks. So it's really kind of now like evolving and cross-pollinating. And I'm just kind of curious as to a uh, better question for Howard, but what he thinks about that, because the network that he's been on for, you know, over a decade and a half is kind of, you know, morphing or maybe it's already morphed into this sort of podcast platform. But like you said, guys like Joe Rogan and, you know, Adam Carolla, they all have jumped ship from terrestrial and they're, and they're making waves with, uh, with their show and their content and, and advertisers. It certainly helps that they have a reputation, uh, you know, in the entertainment business as, as host and, and, you know, whatever's, but, uh, I, I think that's great advice. Let me ask you this. Did, did you go to school broadcasting school? No, just as, just to go back a second to what you said. Sure. I mean, the world, the world, by the world, I mean the media world went crazy, went podcast crazy in the last couple of years because they all believed that there is some sort of pot of gold out there, and all of them felt they needed a podcast network. So you're a hundred percent right. My podcast, I I have a podcast, but it's just a repurpose of one of my interviews for people that don't have SiriusXM. And it was with a company, a leading company called Podcast One up until a couple of years ago. And then Sirius XM, and I was using their content, came and said, hey, well, no, we're building out a podcast network. We want you under this umbrella. So I was willing to do that. But, you know, they went crazy with all these podcasts and so did all these other companies. And then they quickly realized, yeah, these are nice things to have, but monetizing them is a whole nother story. And let's be honest. If you are a company acquiring podcasts or any talent, the idea is to monetize it. Sure. And I think they all quickly found out that it ain't so easy to monetize it. And although they love rolling out these rosters of podcasts, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we make money with this and how do we build audience? Because, again, it's the same thing. Anyone can have one. So where is the audience driven to? And yeah, I mean, a guy like Rogan, I, I, look, I don't, I also don't think, I think, I certainly think some of them are obviously way better than others, but I think there's a lot of others that are really good, but they just don't have audience because like you said, the person doing it might not have this 
huge profile. You know, Conan O'Brien just got a huge deal from Sirius XM yeah. for, for, for a channel driven off of his podcast. Well, yeah, he's, whether you like him or not, he's Conan. He had a late night TV show for years. He's got profile. So it's just about building and driving audience and trying to, to carve out enough of a following that you can monetize it and grow it. And as, as far as um, my career, no, I did not go to school for radio. I did not go to school. I didn't even go to college. I mean, I, I got, it's funny when you talk about a pirate signal because I actually started, I actually made my first demo tape right out of high school for radio on a friend's pirate radio station in his basement in Staten Island. So talk about almost being arrested. Yeah, I can relate <laughs> totally. What, you know, what prompted you to, to do that? Uh, for me, I, my, my dad played a lot of, uh, you know, old time radio theater, the mind stuff, you know, like Jack Benny and suspense and all these things. And, and even, you know, growing up. And then when I first moved to LA, I was working in warehouses, doing lights and stuff like that. And I would be pretty much on my own. So I always had headphones on and I, I would listen to, uh, you know, Dr. Laura or the regular guys or Tom Likas or, you know, whatever was out there, whatever edgy AM radio, uh, duo was out there talking politics or you know current events or whatever uh, I hardly listen to music as a musician and and you're in the industry of of discussing all these musicians but you're also a talk show host were you because I mean you're a huge fan of music and it's it's I feel like that passion for music is what drove you to get into radio uh, do you find yourself currently and then also as a kid were you listening to talk radio and who were some of your favorite guys or what motivated you to get into doing a radio show the sole, well, it's all very different now than it was back then, but the sole reason for me wanting to do radio, it wasn't even about wanting to do radio. It was about a delivery system for me to reach more people uh, with me to talk, to talk about and play for music that I loved, that I felt was being underserved. That was it. There was never a drive. There was never a thought in my mind. There was never, hey, I want to be on the radio. I need to be a broadcaster. It wasn't that at all. I started right out of high school. While I was in high school, I did a little bit of radio and uh, at the college station in my hometown. And then I started writing the music column in my high school newspaper. And then I got a job working at a record store. And then I started doing a little more freelance journalism. So all of these things, Troy, were not about, I want to be a writer. I want to be on TV. I want to be on the radio. It was about, I love this music. I'm not hearing it represented properly how can I spread the word? So, okay, I can write about it now. I can physically sell it to people that came in the record store. And, oh, yeah, now, years later, a couple of years later, I'd start working for a label. I can actually sign these bands. And, oh, yeah, if I have an opportunity to get on the radio, holy shit, that means I can actually take them and play them for people. So it was never about, like, doing just one thing. It was about how many platforms can I find to share this music I love with others? It just so happened that radio has been the one that is stuck. Wow. You know, so you really cut your own path simply out of the passion for the music totally. and, and feeling as if it wasn't, wasn't getting out there enough. Um, did you have totally. a hard... Because, because, Troy, when I found out as a kid, 
that the DJs didn't have anything to do with what they played. I was out. I like had zero interest in pursuing radio though. I didn't want to be on, I had friends that were in the top 40 or talk radio. I didn't want to be on the radio because I wanted to be heard or become known or whatever. I just wanted to be able to share the music I loved with others. So when I showed up and they were like, well, no, we tell you what to play. I'm like, I have zero interest in this. And then that's when I developed the idea of doing my own show, which was one of the first ever shows focused on metal to, because they said, okay, well, the record store I worked at was go- was willing to sponsor my show, which, of course, again, the business aspect is huge. And then they said to me, okay, well, we'll find you a couple hours late night on Friday just so that we can collect this sponsorship money and we'll let you do what you want. So that was the catalyst of letting me get into radio. If they would have held firm on, like, we pick all the music, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today because it was of zero interest to me unless I unless I could share with people what I wanted to. You know, interesting dynamic is uh, you know that you got into radio as a vehicle to to play music and and spread that music to to others. But uh, your your career kind of currently maybe maybe it's been uh, you know a while. I mean, forty years. I you know wasn't aware of you until probably you know I would say probably ten plus years ago. And then you know you, you know you didn't broadcast on the West Coast. So um, but uh, you know you can find some bootleg stuff on the YouTube and hear some of your old shows and older interviews. But with you getting on SiriusXM. I feel as if, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your career's taken a little bit of a twist. Although you are the primary, you know, flag flyer for rock and roll, heavy metal, hard rock, uh, '80s genre stuff, um, you, you you do a lot more talking about it than you do play. And so, it, have oh, you yeah. noticed that you had to to make that pivot, or how did that become that pivot that you now just primarily talk about it, despite the fact that you do a Monday show on Hair Nation? Um, you do a lot more talking. Which is than also playing. half talk, yeah. which is also now fifty percent talk. So you're hundred percent right. Of the shows I currently do, there, which if you count the podcast, which would be eight a week, six are live, and of the six that are live on SiriusXM, five and a half of those six are predominantly talk and interview. And you ask how that happened. Well, a few things. Uh, I am, as I got older, I became a huge fan of talk radio. Some of the personalities you mentioned previously. I'm also a big sports fan in the New York market. We have two sports talk radio stations. So I listen to those probably more than anything because it gets me away from music a little bit. I enjoy that. Um, But I, I had the, so, so I've been on Sirius. So I've been on Sirius XM, or initially it was XM and then the merger for me, but I've been part of satellite radio since 2000, so wow. 22 years now, which is crazy. Wow. And uh, I I was adamant when I first started with them. They approached me, and again, at that time, Sirius and XM were two different companies. They were very vicious competitors, actually. And I, were, I went, XM and Sirius both offered me a show, and I... I went to XM for two reasons. They had way more subscribers, but also more importantly, they were willing to let me do a live show and do whatever I wanted to do. Whereas at the time, Sirius was only like, oh, we're only interested in you recording voice tracks and putting them around our music. Again, not appealing to me. So I went to XM and um, the the thing about it is, is that as, as we've progressed and as technology has progressed and as the way people listen to music has changed, literally everyone is walking around with 
every song in the world pretty much in their pocket mm -hmm. if they want to pull it up. So, and being a, more and more a fan of talk radio and being more of a fan of the stories and the conversations also juxtaposed against the fact that I'm now have 40 years of experience and stories to relay the idea of talking about the music became really of interest to me a long time ago, long before podcasts were even really a huge deal. And I'll never forget when I was doing this one time a week show on initially XM and then after the merger, Sirius XM, I would go on the air and I don't know, I was on three, four hours live and I would play some songs and then I'd stop music and I would take calls for 15, 20 minutes and then play more songs. And people freaked out in a bad way, um, including my program director at the time. Like, you know, what the hell are you doing? The music's got to keep going. You shouldn't be talking for more than 35 seconds, blah, blah, blah. And I go, no, I want to do things like this. Trust me, they'll come around. And there was huge blowback initially when I started doing that, like to the point that I thought they were going to fire me because they would bomb the feedback email and be like, tell this guy to shut the fuck up and play more music because they weren't used to anything like that, the audience. And I stuck to my guns and sure enough, it quickly transitioned to when I couldn't be on and I only played pre-recorded music and I wasn't actually on live taking calls, the backlash went the other way. Oh, he just mailed it in this week. It was nothing but songs. There was no call. <laughs> so I believed in what I was doing and I stuck it out and I kept that formula for a long time as an island, really, at SiriusXM doing that, but it's, it, it kind of reversed back to what I said before. Find ways to be unique and, and different and build an audience. It quickly built an audience. It was the only show people heard new music. It was the only show people could make requests. It was the only show people could win stuff. It was the only show they could call into and get on the air. And that was all super unique on satellite radio. So that built me this audience and following for this one time a week show. And then flash forward to around 2014, my old, uh, an old uh, affiliate of mine at VH1, I see him walk in the halls at, at Sirius XM and comes over and he said, what are you doing? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm just going to start working here. He goes, I'm going to develop a channel that's going to be an all talk and interview channel about music. And I go, well, it sounds kind of familiar what I've been doing. He goes, well, he said, not only that, but he said, I am going to uh, make a point of telling them I need you as part of the team here to launch this channel. And I was very, very disillusioned with Sirius XM because I had been there at that point, like 13 years. And honestly, in my view, was treated not well at all. Like I couldn't get beyond one show a week. The money was a joke. It was, but I did it cause I loved it. And I had a, and I had a, an audience and I was, I told him immediately, I was like, yeah, good luck with that. Because I had previously sent every manager, agent, whatever up there to try to make a deal for me. Couldn't get anywhere, but he, he was adamant that he couldn't launch it without me and wanted me as part of this team for this new channel, which was called volume. 
And, uh, you know, his name is Roger Coletti. He's still a friend to this day. He's still my program director to this day. And Roger fought like hell to make me a part of the launch of that channel. And he did. And for the first time, they were they made me a really fair offer. And for the last seven years and change, I've I started doing a daily rock talk and interview show, which I still do today. Now, unfortunately, about six months ago, Volume went off the air as an over-the-air channel, so they moved my show to another channel called Faction Talk, which is number 103, and that's all fine. It's an unfortunate, it's unfortunate Volume went away. It's on the app only, but it's, you know, I, I managed to keep my show. So I love the dialogue, and I got to be honest, in, in all my years of my career, doing this show every day has been really one of my favorite things I've ever done. It's so much fun. And I model it as sports talk for the rock fan. And I think that where we're at now, anybody can, anybody can say, Hey, that was, you shook me all night long and here's pour some sugar on me. And I'm not diminishing all my fellow radio people that do that. And some do it well and make a great living doing it. But I'm way more interested in being able to go on the air every day and, yap for two hours about this story today or that story tomorrow or here's the show i just saw hey what do you think and get that immediate response that's i love doing that and i still have a terrestrial radio show that's all music so i still have my outlets to actually play music but i'm way more about the story and using my experience and history to you know build an audience that way yeah, you mentioned, uh, you know, telling the stories behind the story, and you've been in your career as an A&R guy, and kind of at the, you know, the beginnings of Megaforce, you, you were part of a lot of those stories. Um, we'll get to that in a second, but you, you mentioned, uh, you know, having your terrestrial radio show in addition to the Sirius XM and then the podcast, which will kind of pull from the interviews and then go up there and live in, in the archive for On Demand. Uh, which one do you not necessarily like better, but what's the difference with what you're doing outside of the fact that the the format's slightly different because you're doing more talk and interview on the daily show, but your weekend show where you're playing more music, uh, I mean, is it is there a different, I mean, it's definitely different mediums, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's still radio. Do you find any, do you feel like you're going back to the old days when you do your weekly terrestrial show, or is it just kind of just another show? No, I, I don't feel like I'm going back to the old days because that show is completely pre-recorded and pre-produced and goes to the affiliates that run it, which there are maybe 30 of them gotcha. a week before. And it is something that I I personally, that show is the show that started everything for me if you trace the lineage back. That show is an extension of what I started 40 years ago. Um, but it's obviously changed and evolved tremendously. Like, Initially, I started doing it. It was live, and it was really live up until probably 10 years ago, maybe less, when it transitioned into a pre-recorded show. Because syndicated radio by design, especially a weekly show, stations want to run it in the time they want, on the day they want. When you're insisting that they take it live, it's very limiting to the amount of people that can take it. And also, but what I do, because it's more classic and some new hard rock and metal, it's already limiting because even at the height of my profile, when I was doing TV and everything, I still couldn't get radio stations to run the show. They're still petrified of an ACDC song other than you shook me all night long. They don't know what to do. So um, it's, you know, I, I just, 
And then I was doing that when I was doing that show live, there were a lot of talk elements in it and that was pissing off affiliates. So I realized, you know what? Why fight that? I now have a podcast and five shows a week to talk and do interviews. Let me give the, the FM world exactly what they want, which is three hours of wall to wall music. It's still all stuff I'm picking. It's still totally me, but it's, completely music intensive and if people want to hear talk and interviews and they don't have Sirius XM all they got to do is listen to the podcast and I cherry pick one and give it to them there so everything kind of serves its purpose but as as far as what I like doing the best without question it's my daily show which is now on 103 I mean it's just I mean it's there's very few times you're super lucky if you can say like what you do each day is something you really look forward to. And I can honestly say that about that show. I mean, I just got off the air a few minutes ago and I hadn't done it live for a couple of days because I had some specials running, but just getting caught up and talking to the audience and you, it sounds corny, but you really feel like you've got a, a team and a family that's out there that's like-minded and really into having this dialogue. So I absolutely love doing my, my daily talk show. It's I, I, I Although I'd never say never, it would be really hard for me, and I've done this forever, but it would be really hard for me to go back to, uh, you know, saying here's Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall, and yeah. up next is Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. I mean, I just, again, I'm not diminishing anybody that does that, but I, I hear it because I do still listen to FM radio or even satellite radio, and I'm like, man, how many ways can you sound excited about introducing hotel California, you know, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> but it is what it is, you know, there's, there's, and, and by the way, real quick to end on that topic, unfortunately, that's another thing. A lot of those jobs have dried up because they're computers in small and medium market radio stations and some large market radio stations. There's not even a human being DJ there. It's piped in. That's a little secret. People don't know. So, it used to be when you were younger, when I was a kid starting out, how do you get started? Well, you go to small markets, you work on the overnight. Those don't exist anymore. It's a computer program. So you really have to figure out, I tell people all the time, if you want to have a career in radio, to have a shot at making some decent money and some longevity, in my opinion, you have to have it be talk-based and about you. And that's not from a selfish or an ego standpoint. It's that a computer cannot replace you for what you're uniquely bringing to the table. Anyone, a computer can replace anybody that's back selling records for 30 seconds. So I think that's a really important thing in where media is today. 100% agree on that. Uh, I, I don't like listening to the computer. Uh, I like listening to somebody with, uh, with an opinion. And even, I, you know, I listen to Hair Nation, and, and uh, I like that the, uh, the jocks there, you know, try and inject maybe a little story that's personal. And I know they probably have a snippet of time to do it, and they probably have to stay within some sort of boundaries. Maybe I'm wrong, but you certainly, yeah. oh, you're correct. You certainly don't have a leash, and, and that certainly makes it magical to, to do the show that you do. Well, one of the many shows you do. Um, which brings me to uh, how much prep do you do now? Your show is primarily audience driven, which is great because you have people calling in, you have opinions, you know facts because you've know 
known a lot of these guys, and 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 you're often criticized. Well, Eddie, of course it's Eddie's friend. Of course Eddie knows that guy. He know he knows everybody. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you you've been in this industry for forty years in radio at a label. You do know these guys. You do create the relationships with them. But uh, with that being said, how much prep goes into your average show? Not not necessarily the you know free for all Friday shows where it's listener driven, people call with just whatever question. But the ones where you have a Brian Johnson of ACDC coming on that you know has a book coming out. Do you have to do a lot of uh, research on that stuff? And the other question is, well, the other part of that question is that you do a lot of traveling. So where do you find the time to do your prep? I, I don't really do a lot of prep. I, I don't need to, thankfully. I, I've uh, and I, again, I'm not saying this from some sort of ego standpoint, but it's just the truth. I, I've lived this literally my whole life. So I'm in it every day. Like every, like if I'm not on the air, I might be watching a documentary about music. I might be reading a book or a magazine about music every day. I'm going through emails from publicists or whatever that are sending me pitches and just creating awareness for their bands. So I don't, I don't really like, for instance, Brian Johnson, who was just a guest, I don't need to prep to talk to Brian, but all of these guys have something they want to sell. So I will say, hey, send me a one sheet, send me the item so I can actually talk about it with the person. And when it comes to books, it's very difficult because reading a book is very time consuming and everybody wants their book promoted at the right time. Brian was just on, songwriter Holly Knight was just on to promote a book. And I'll usually tell him like, hey, you can come on, but I'm not going to have time to read the book. Otherwise, you may have to wait a few months until I can take the time to read. So on a, my my daily routine normally is if I, as I go on the air 3 Eastern every day, and I usually will start, get you know, go through computer, go through the emails, go through some social media, see what's going on out there, usually about an hour or so before I go live and make a couple notes or if something jumps out at me and uh, something I want to comment about or talk, I'll scribble it down. But that's pretty much the extent of it. And obviously it's a little different though, if you're doing a featured thing, if it's a special, then you want to know what the, 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 the item is. Like Slash was just on to promote a guitar book. So it's like, hey, make sure you get me the book. Let me go through it. Um, so really that's, that's the extent of it, but it's funny though. I do want to touch on something that you said also is you, you talk about like, and look, I am not enough. Literally, I can honestly say this when you do this, as long as I have, you have heard it all and nothing bothers you. And it really doesn't. I laugh at it. So when I re it's funny, it's so funny to me. Like when you hear the term, like name drop or, um, you know, that guy, he said that guy's his friend. Uh, okay. Well, what's wrong with like, why, why is that a problem? <laughs> like, you know, I never understood that. And I just take from it that it's probably a lot to do with jealousy, um, from people. And, you know, there are plenty of people that are in this industry that I have on my show all the time that are not friends. And then there are plenty of people that are, but you know, and it's funny too, because like, if I make a post about something and I don't do some big embellished, my good friend, this and that, then I'll hear from that person be like, Hey dude, you know, like what the fuck thanks, <laughs> I think, you know, you get it from so both ends. <laughs> you can't win. You can't win. And the thing about it is I'm not going to apologize for having built a career and a history with so many of these people. 
Um, just because, you know, somebody thinks that it's like, you know, I don't know what it is, a self-serving, I don't know. And the other thing that I've always despised is if I'm doing an interview or I'm talking to somebody and I talk about these artists and my history with them and things that I've done with them and people say, oh, he's a name dropper. That to me is the most absurd, ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life because the whole reason I do what I do is because, and, and I built what I built, is because of my history doing this. So if I'm telling a story and re relating something, am I supposed to drop the person who would be the celebrity figure out of it and not say their name because I'm a name? Like, it's so absurd. Like, I talk about all the time, like, if I'm watching ESPN or something and I don't know, Scott Van Pelt was something to do with Shaq or whatever. He says, he doesn't say, well, I don't want to be a name dropper. You, you've got to do that. That's the whole reason why you're hired is to let the people in on that inside stuff. So I, I just find all of that stuff really laughable and it, it, it doesn't bother me at all. It's more head scratching. Cause it's like, well, yeah, if you had somebody that you consider a friend, like, why wouldn't you call them your friend? And if you had an audience that wanted to hear about your experiences with people that they are a fan of, why would it be considered like, you know, name dropping to say their name? That's what you're being paid to do. So it's, it's all pretty silly. And I think that anybody that does have a, a problem with it, it's probably driven by just some sort of jealousy, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and the names that you are quote-unquote dropping are the topics of your conversation, and it's what people are tuning in for, or at least they need to know what you're <laughs> referencing in order to, you know, see if they're going to be engaged with it or not. Um, you know, you mentioned your your schedule earlier in the show with, with all the live shows and, you know, the pre-records for the podcast, which is uh, syndicated, or I'm sorry, your terrestrial radio show, which is syndicated. Um, how do you find the balance with, with that in your family? I, I came across, and, and this kind of goes back to your 40th, which is coming next year, came across some uh, archived video of your 25th and then your 30th. You know, you kind of had a little bit of a, I, I would call it, you know, roasted by some of those friends, you know, giving you a hard time while still congratulating you on that many years in, in the business. And I, and I did happen to see uh, Mrs. Trunk on there. And I feel like, I, I, you know, we don't hear a lot about your family, uh, you know, because you're there doing a rock show. And I have always wondered, like, you know, this guy's constantly flying. He's got a he's got a crib in Vegas. He's got Jersey. He's doing gigs all over the place. He's doing live radio shows, whether it's remote or back at the studio or yeah, I mean you're kind of everywhere. And so I was like finding it intriguing because I've been a touring musician for a long time, and, and I know that that balance can be very challenging. Then I saw her give you just a little bit of, uh, you know, just some, some fun on the roast or the congratulating you. I was like, oh, okay, she gets it. So I feel like you found your, your match, that somebody gets what you do. They know that that's what you do. But uh, how is that day-to-day -day balance where, where you're not home a lot of the time? Well, it is a balance. You're 100% right. And I think what you're talking about with the roast was, if I recall, there was like a video done on my 30th. Yeah. And those guys all – I think Portnoy was kind of running that whole thing, and he put a, a video. I forgot about that. I think it may even be on YouTube. But I, I remember uh, I remember that video now, which, believe it or not, is 10 years ago. But you're right. It is absolutely a balance. 
and the the good thing is is like you know i was i was in this mode like the schedule i keep even long before i had a family you know i, I, I so coming into it uh, my wife certainly knew what i did but the thing that's that makes it a little easier i think too is the fact that she's not into my world of music she's not a hard rock fan she's not into these bands and this scene at all so it's not like oh my god i'm doing this event and uh i'm missing out i'm missing out and then the other thing was when we had kids the the, the basically we had decided um you know that because of the nature of what i do and because i'm out there running around that that we we would make this work so that I didn't have to compromise my career, and then the kids obviously still had everything that they wanted. Um, not to get overly personal about it, but I'm I'm lucky that I have all the work I have and the opportunities I I have because it's given my family the opportunity to have everything they want. Because I'm as as much as this is all a passion thing for me to, to be in this music industry for all these years, there reaches the, there's a certain, there's a huge difference between when I was in it at 18 and now when I'm in it in my fifties, because now it's about paying all covering a huge nut. I mean, family expenses, kids, everything. So obviously that comes into play. So it's a, it's more of a dual thing. It's like, well, yeah, you also got to make a living doing this because I'm supporting a whole family doing it. So there's a great understanding there. And the other thing is I do travel a lot, and but it's nowhere near to the level of what a touring musician would do. So when I go somewhere, it might be five days, it might be two days, it might be two weeks, and I'm back for a week or two. I might not go anywhere for a month. It's all ebbs and flows with whatever the opportunities are presented. And you're right. The word you used is hundred percent, right. A balancing act, but it's not like, it's not like, like, you know, Holy shit, we missed out on going to see uh kingdom come you know? <laughs> just because uh, there's just, there's just even my kids, they're not into this world at all. Um, and I've never forced anybody to be into it. I was adamant about that. Like when I had kids, everybody's like, are you going to turn them into metal heads? And I'm like, no, <laughs> when whatever, whatever they discover naturally, if they gravitate towards what I do, great. Uh, if they don't and they're on their own path, that's fine too, because that's, you know, I believe that's how it should be. And my, my son's in marching band. My daughter just graduated high school. She's in a trade school. So everybody's kind of like getting older now and kind of, you know, chasing what they're doing in the next phase of their life. And I'm still doing what I'm doing. And actually it's become a little bit easier because they are older and they are self-sufficient a, a little more, but that onus is still on me to make sure that I've got, uh, you know, enough money coming in and enough hustle coming in to make sure everybody's set. But I'm also of course doing what I love doing. So it, it, it works out quite well, but yeah, it absolutely is a balance. And you can't forget the birthdays and the anniversaries, right? You remember those? <laughs> you, no, I'm horrible at that. <laughs> you I'm have horrible. a you have a memory for everything else. But <laughs> no, I'm funny. terrible, Troy, with dates. I'm awful. And you know, I had a I had an aunt 
who was like another mother to me who passed away a couple years ago. And as pathetic as this sounds, she would always be the one that would call me and tip me off. Hey, you know this ah. birthday, <laughs> and now she's gone, and it's really bad because I'm terrible at that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's dip our toes just a little bit into Megaforce, uh, only because, you know, you, especially with uh, the Metallica tribute that they did um, for those that ran Megaforce, uh, I feel like the listeners can find that from your mouth and really get into it. And, and we're just kind of dipping our toes in a couple different things. So we won't belabor that too much. But uh, when you got into Megaforce, again, you know, you didn't go to college. How did you forge that relationship to where you're ultimately, uh, you know, signing bands and then became VP after a few years there, uh, somewhere around the age of 25, and then uh, being an executive producer on, on many albums and, uh, I also want to know what that term meant to you. Like, what did you actually do as an executive producer? Because I, I think a lot of us don't really know what that means. Sometimes it means in the business, that's the, the bankroll. But I think you as a, as a young 20-year-old, no. you weren't bankrolling anything. No. But, uh, but tell me about how you, how you forged that. And, and I feel like you've, this has kind of been your path where you didn't have agents or people. You didn't have schooling. You, didn't have, you just kind of went out and got it and convinced people that, hey, this is... I can do this, and I find that admirable. Uh, did you same same experience with Megaforce getting that relationship, and then ultimately hired by them? The Megaforce thing was a byproduct of me doing radio very early on. Like I said, starting in '83 and doing radio for a few years, and in New Jersey on a station called WDHA, which was my first station. I grew up listening to it, and then right out of high school, started doing this metal show there. And what happened was, is I was, I was one of the only people playing metal anywhere on the radio. And it made a lot of noise that I was doing that. And one of the guys that it connected with was a guy named Johnny Z, who had a, a store called Rock and Roll Heaven, which was an import record shop in a flea market. And I used to go there and buy Kerrang! and all these magazines. And Johnny said to me, when I started doing this radio show, suddenly started giving me records and saying, play them, because when I played them, he'd sell more of them. And then, long story short, one day he came up to my studio, and right when I started radio in 83, and he had a record under his arm, and he literally knocked on the door while I was on the air, and he said, will you please play this band? I'm not going to leave unless you play this. And I'm like, what are you, crazy? And that band was Metallica. And at that time, he had just mortgaged his house and risked everything to sign this band, and he couldn't get anyone to play him on the radio. So I did. And when he left, he wrote on the record, Ed, you were the first, you know, whatever, John Z, and left. And he said to me, if I can ever get this band to happen, I'm going to hire you to work for me, for my label. Yeah, yeah, right, whatever. And then three years later, 86, he calls me and he said, well, obviously, you know, Metallica's taken off. I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to make good on my promise to hire you. I said, really? He said, yeah, but there's one bad thing. I said, what's that? He said, you're not going to be working with Metallica because the money I've gotten in the settlement for them leaving me is what I'm using to start the label because they're going to Electra. So I said, okay. And uh, with that, I started working for that label and I started working out of his house it was a house in a, with a garage attached to it. There was no office. It was as bare bones as you could imagine. And from there, you know, one of my initiatives was I wanted to build the label to be a little bit more 
accessible. I wanted to have bands that could maybe get played on the radio, not just thrash. So the first thing I did was go out and find Ace Freely. And then I brought in a couple acts that didn't do so well. Uh, Johnny, you know, we evolved. We built the label. We built the staff. We moved eventually to an office. And from 86 to ni early 91, I was, uh, I became vice president of that company at like in my early twenties, I would take meetings with Atlantic records and we had all these amazing experiences and he took me to England for the first time. So my, my entry into that was because I was doing this radio show. I took a chance on Metallica. He took a chance on me and Metallica just played a tribute show to John and Marsha, who sadly recently passed away and they did it in Florida a few weeks ago, and they flew me down to go out on stage and speak about them and intro them because they knew my history. And sadly, I'm one of only two people, three people that were around and are still still alive to talk about that particular time because John and Marsha are both gone. It's because of that, you know, tenacity to, you know, find your way on the radio for the passion of the music that somebody else saw in you and also, you know, loyalty, which is not a phrase we hear that much anymore. This guy was loyal to you because you you did him a solid and and he was able to to come back and and uh, pay it forward or pay, you know, pay it back to you in in a way, but obviously he got something from you with all of your efforts working for Megaforce. I, I love hearing the stories about, you know, some guy with a record shop at the flea market. And, you know, and just think if it wasn't for him going out and, uh, you know, boots on the ground and getting his hands dirty and just like yourself, finding your way to, to get on a station to share this music. There's a lot. Think about that. There, there's one missing piece that could just not have happened. And we maybe maybe we wouldn't have a Metallica. And that's pretty interesting to think about. Um, let's get into a, a couple things about the rants, and and I, I know we're 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 hitting a lot of stuff here, and it's okay. We can touch the surface, and then people can dive deeper on their own. But uh, you're you're known. My favorite thing is I, I like a pissed off Eddie Trunk because it shows that passion that you have. Uh, you know, for for example, the Grammys and you know NFL, they won't have. A rock band play their halftime but you know every other song i mean i heard cinderella the other day we always hear metallica bon jovi i mean we hear every sleazebees i think i might have heard on there I'm like who how do they not think that you know they can hire a rock band uh, and then the hall of fame grammy all the music award shows they just for some reason snub their nose to uh the, the rock and roll acts that you fly the flag for and it and it it really gets your go and I love it by the way because I love the passion that's behind it have any of these institutions number 1 maybe addressed or acknowledged your disdain for their lack of uh, inclusion and have they ever thought about reaching out or vice versa going give me a shot to like produce or give you some ideas or lead you towards something that would be inclusive inclusive of the genre yeah, I mean, whenever, look, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people like when I get animated and crazy, and I tell people all the time, it's never planned, it's never by design, it's just genuine, uh, I never sit down and, oh, I'm going to go off today, I mean, it's just, it just the way I am, I get going i get talking i'm i'm half italian i do a lot of talking with my hands you know <laughs> it's like so i i just it's never a premeditated thing ever uh but that being said i do know that people find most people not all but most people i'm sure find it entertaining or funny or interesting or 
appreciate the where it's coming from to the point that when i was doing that metal show on tv my producer used to always get into the guest's ear and give them a phrase say oh feel free to poke the bear meaning wind me up (laughs) get me going yeah they used to love that even when we were doing this trivia segment on the show they used to intentionally tell me i was wrong when i was right because they like to see me get crazy so a a lot of that was going on on the tv side but uh, to answer your question none of nfl or whatever i mean why does that happen why is rock so ignored because i think that the people that are producing these shows are genuinely not rock fans and or even maybe necessarily big music fans but i do believe that what they do is they just default to whatever the charts are that year so here we are at the end of the year they'll go pull airplay charts clicks streams whatever and see okay uh Dua Lipa was like a top four streamed artist this year. Okay, well, let's put her in the Super Bowl. Like, it's just that sort of narrow-mindedness. And unfortunately, rock is not in those categories by and large, so they're just not going to think it's big enough without thinking of, like, not just worried about what the hot act is, but what about the acts that have 30, 40, 50-year histories? And that's where I think the the... The, the the issue is on all of this stuff. You just don't have real music people that are thinking on a long-term level of these decisions that they're making for the audience. And no, uh, none of these organizations, even if I've roasted them, have ever reached out to me except, and I've always given them credit for this, maybe the institution I, to this day, continue to be most critical of, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they made me a voting member like 10 years ago. So, and even though it hasn't done anything to diminish when I feel it's warranted me going off about them, to their credit, they could have easily said, well, the hell with that guy. All he does is kill us. We'll never have him involved. No, they said, you know what? Let's let his voice be heard and actually give him an actual full vote and put him on the voting panel. So, and that was Tom Morello that really did that for me. I got to give him credit because Tom's on the nominating board and he talked them into bringing me on as a voter. And uh, I actually just talked to Tom and the guy now who runs the nominating committee is an old, old friend of mine. So they've been really understanding about, they know I've got a position, they know I'm passionate about it, and they know that that position needs to be reflected a little bit more in what they do. So I give them credit for, even though I don't agree with a lot of what they do, at least they've given me a voice and I can hopefully maybe help make some change and hopefully have helped make some change for the 10 years or so that I've been a voter. Interesting. That's interesting to hear. We had mentioned some of the uh, lifelong relationships you've had with these artists that you not only interview, but, you know, talk about in the news. So, you know, you're, you're friends with uh, Sebastian Bach here in Vegas and, uh, you know, the guys from the Poison Camp, Pete Evick. And, you know, Dave Ellison, you've got a long history with them. When you are discussing uh, news about them, uh, for example, maybe Sebastian uh, gets a little political or, you know, Dave Ellison had a had a pretty heavy duty scandal. Pete Evick just went out and, and said, you know, Phil Anselmo is a douchebag and also said that the solo band is much better than 
poison. I, and I know that he walked it back a little bit and tried to, to do some clarification on it. But, you know, he, he did kind of put it out there before he reeled it in. Do you ever have any, like, outside of uh, the industry conversations with these guys or just go, hey, w- what's going on over here? What are you doing? Do you, you know, because you, you have not only a duty to your listenership to, you know, report the news that is reported out there about these guys, but you also have these friendships with them, and some of them are very long-lasting. Do you ever have a, a battle between being the friend and being the, hey, I'm the radio guy, and, it, and if I don't report on this, then people are going to call me out on it. How do you deal with that? I generally, my whole career, stay away from the um, gossipy stuff. You will hardly ever ever hear me talk about somebody getting divorced, somebody uh, being, you know, doing whatever they're doing, um, somebody giving us an opinion, you know, like you said about what Pete just said or whatever. I actually, I actually, whether I agree with it or not, I applaud anybody in today's climate that's willing to give an honest opinion. People wonder why so much radio and so many interviews are so unbelievably boring because we're in such an insanely hypersensitive world where nobody wants to give an honest opinion or appraisal. And I think that that is really, really sucks. So when somebody does that, even if I don't agree with it at all, I, I will not, uh, pounce on them for it because I I believe everybody is entitled still to an opinion, whether it's a popular one or not. And uh, I just don't get into that gossipy stuff. I mean, every day I'll see stuff come across my desk and it's like, you know, this one's getting divorced. This one got busted with this person. This one is, you know, owed behind $100,000 on alimony or whatever gossipy sort of things that are out there. I don't touch it. It's not of interest to me. That's TMZ stuff. It's not for me. I like to stay more with in the lane of what is about the music. Now, that being said, when you mentioned the Ellison situation, that had to be addressed because it cost him his gig. So that, that impacted... Megadeth's record, who was going to be on it, if he was staying in the band. So that, of course, had to be talked about. And when Dave contacted me and said, hey, I've got this new thing I want to talk about, I said to him off the air, I said, hey, bud, all good, but you know we have to go there if you come on. Because you're right, I would be look like I'm not doing my job if I don't do that. Because again, it wasn't just a personal thing. It wasn't a behind-the-scenes thing. He lost his job. So um, at that time, I remember he initially approached me. He said, I understand. He said, but I can't do that right now. I said, okay, well, when you can, call me and let's do this. And he did. And then about a month later, he called me. He said, okay, ask me anything you want. Let's go. And I did. And I think I did the first interview with him coming off of that whole thing. But I generally don't. There's a lot of people that like to jump on things and get into the gossipy stuff and kick people when they're down or pile on or pounce. I, I've never been that guy. I'm more about I want to hear the stories about the I don't I don't care so much about the dirt. I'm way into the creation of the records and the stories about what these guys are doing or women are doing. And I just I just never got uh, deep into that sort of end of things. So. Uh, if it impacts them on the performance and music side, sure. But if it's like 
personal stuff. It's gossipy stuff. It's just not, I, I honestly, it's never appealed to me. Even I know that TMZ has built an empire on it. I know that there are websites and people that have built an empire on it are super intrigued and they just live for that moment. They can pick a scab and pounce, but I just never felt good about that stuff and never really got into it. Fair enough. As uh, a lot of the bands, you know, from the 80s heyday are getting older and, you know, we're finding less and less members being a part of them just due to maybe lack of interest. These guys are passing away um, or, you know, for whatever reason, they've moved on to to different careers. Um, I kind of want to hit on because I I did listen for the first time your interview with Vito Brada in 07. And I know that he recently did an interview. Uh, that appeared in Guitar Player magazine, maybe from 2019, but it just came out in the past year. Is uh, is that kind of the last time that you spoke to him, as far as a you know an interviewer goes? Well, yeah, I, I actually got him that Guitar World interview. That okay. was an interesting thing. I'm I'm like the guy that, when it comes to him in particular, I'm the I'm like the go between somehow because I do still talk to him and. Well, I shouldn't say talk. We rarely talk, but we're in touch via email or whatever. But um, people just, you know, always come to me to get to him. And I tell them all the same thing. Look, I'll throw this by him. I can't promise a response. And he, he, uh, when I went to him with the Guitar World thing, I knew the writer on that, a guy named Matt Wake. And I told, I sent it to Vito and Vito told me he'd do it. And it really floored me. But Vito said he would do it because Guitar World put him on the cover back in the day and he felt he owed them something to do it. So he did that. That was the only interview he's done in a really long time. The one with he did with me, I mean, I've talked to him since we did that 15 years ago. And I said, you got to come back on. You got to come back on. And he's just, you know, he's just, he doesn't. These guys that are totally out of the business, they just don't feel like they've got anything to talk about. Sure. And they just don't feel like there's any real reason to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I I just was talking to Brad Whitford. Uh, a, a detractor would say, who's just name drop? <laughs> Watch your toes, <laughs> what Eddie. What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to say? I may have talked to a guy who's one of the guitar players in Aerosmith. It's so dumb. <laughs> But I just, so I just talked to Brad Whitford like a week ago. I saw him in Vegas. And I said to Brad, I said, hey, why don't you come on my show? And he goes, well, there's nothing going on right now. I got nothing to talk about. I go, dude, you got 50 plus years to talk about. Yeah. But a lot of artists don't think like that. If they're not, like, they don't have an active current thing. They just don't want to do stuff. So that's kind of how Vito's wired. But, uh, you know, I... I always tell him people are always asking about him. I always try to put stuff on his radar and he, he decides what he does and doesn't want to do. When I listened to that interview, uh, so I, I met Vito very briefly when I was out with Mike Tramp as his drummer in Tramp's White Line and, and met him at his house in Staten Island. But we, the band kind of went off, did their own thing. And that was the first time that they had spoken. I believe it was like in the backyard. And I think they sort of had a little bit of a powwow and then things you know, kind of went south from there. Um, you know, obviously there was a lot of litigation. We were booted from the Rat Poison tour in 07, you know, with the litigation happening and for the fact that we had a guy named Gabe Reed as our not, non-attorney attorney. 
you know, Mike Tramp, you know, lost the case. And, uh, you know, he's actually in many interviews have now kind of reeled back, which, you know, to me personally, and I've reached out to him about this. I said, listen, I don't know about the dynamics of you and Vito. And I don't think anybody else really knows except for you and Vito. But I respect it. And I really got to hear a nice insight of him as a person because, you know, for a little bit, I kind of felt like, you know, why is this guy, you know, the 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 way the analogy was well there's one piece of the pie left i don't want to have it but i don't want you to have it and that's kind of that that was something that mike tramp had said and that sat in my head and i was always you know team tramp because he gave me a wonderful opportunity to go out and not only play with his band in front of you know tens of thousands of people uh almost 40 countries uh release an album some live stuff um, I was always team him, but then when I heard the veto and, and really kind of really what his, what his issue was, I, I found a lot of respect for him. And Mike has since really kind of reeled back on, you know, I should have never done it. I shouldn't have called it this. I shouldn't have called it that or the other. But, um, and by the way, you are listening to this, that, and the other radio show. My host, my guest, Eddie Trunk. It sounds like you're hosting the show, Eddie. You're that good. Dirty Radio, Dead FM Channel 2, Dirty Radio Classics. You know, there's there's some rumor that, uh, well, Mike Tramp's going to be coming to the States doing Mike Tramp and the songs of White Lion. He's got a new logo and that there is a new full band album coming out where he's, you know, kind of re-recorded these songs of White Lion and, uh, d- you know, doing them the way that he's doing them now is a little bit more of a singer-songwriter, a little bit more Brian Adams kind of vibe, you know, but still rocking. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, is this kind of poking the Vito bear again? And what do you, what do you think Vito might think about this when he's coming out with this logo, Mike Tramp and the music of White Lion and, and potentially touring as a full band? Well, I, I think like anything, it depends upon how it's marketed and phrased. And I don't know what the legalities between the two of them are as far as the name usage is concerned. So, you know, Mike would know that better than anybody. I just, I, I, you know, Mike seems to have a, a very conflicted thing with, with white lion. He, uh, one minute just wants to, I think, become distance himself and become this completely different guy, singer, songwriter, Bruce Springsteen, uh, making solo records and all that. And that's all well and good. And then, and he's kind of like backburnered white lion, doesn't want to be that guy. And then other times he'll come around and embrace it, re-records, go out and play the songs, whatever. But to me, Mike has just as much of a right to perform those songs as anyone because he's the co-writer of pretty much every one of them. So they're just as much his songs than anyone else's. And how he chooses to do that and what the legalities are that's between him and Vito. I mean, I I think we're at a time now, it, it, it blows my mind how many people will accept any lineup of any band and how many bands are out there with no original members or one original member just using the name and how many promoters don't even do their homework to find out who's actually in these bands. Because again, if it's a soft ticket, meaning a casino or a fair or something like that, we just want the logo for our ad mat and half the people coming don't know whoever was in the band to begin with. So there is, I understand why, and this is why there are wars over who owns the name of a band to this day, because if you have the name and you've got the brand at whatever level it is, you can make money with it. Skinnered, 
who I just saw a week ago, is out there with technically no original members. Foreigner has been doing it forever. It's amazing. It used to be like if somebody wasn't in a band, it was a major thing, and there was no way that you could imagine that people going to see it. Now you're seeing, like, on a day's notice, a, a drum or guitar tech step in for a key member of a band, and people just roll with it. It's crazy to me, but I think that's driving even more the desire for people to go out and get a hold of these names and to be able to go out and try to monetize it on the road. So, yeah, it sounds as if you're sort of agreeing with the fact that, uh, you know, in, especially in a live setting, these bands, you know, and the delusion of the, um, you know, deluded is what I mean, of the these original members is it's something that we sort of have to kind of accept because it's either you're going to get a deluded version of the band or you're not going to get it at all. And then you choose whether you are willing to go see that, you know, Foreigner is a prime example. And there's a lot of other bands that are out there that are, you know, becoming less and less members and so it's like, well, it's either this or or nothing. And uh, so have your thoughts on, you know, because back in the day, growing up as kids like yourself, we we wanted to see the, the OG, the guys that were on the back of the album were the guys that, that I expected to see on stage. Obviously, with people getting older or, you know, whatever, passing away, that doesn't happen anymore. And so it's something we have to sort of accept. But do you still fight it or, or do you accept it or is it on a case by case basis? But to me, it's case by case. I just went on a huge rant, positive rant, about Skinner, who I saw in Vegas a week, a week and a half ago, whatever it was. Because to, to me, Skinner, it's kind of like Foreigner now, where Gary Rossington's kind of around but doesn't play most of the shows. Sure. So when Gary Rossington doesn't play, it's, it's technically no original members. But to me, Skinner is valid. And the reason why I say that is because, okay, the circumstances for Skinner not having certain members are tragic, a plane crash. The, the other thing is the singer in the band is the brother of the guy. If you watch the show, they're super deferential to the people that were in the band before, to the point they put their names up. Second song into the set, Johnny Van Zant, the singer, says on the microphone, we're here to pay tribute to the music of Leonard Skinner. So right up front, they're telling you, this isn't Skinner, but this is family members. This is the essence of Skinner doing the best we can. And it's great. It's great. So, and the songs are great. So to me, that's one of the rare examples where it works. I think Foreigner has been able to pull this off for so long because to me, much like Skinner in some ways, Foreigner was never built on star personalities. Foreigner was built on phenomenal songs. And Lou Graham was never a pinup. He wasn't Steven Tyler. He wasn't Robert Plant. He wasn't David Lee Roth. He was an amazing singer, but he wasn't that big personality, great looking pinup guy like those guys were. Uh, Mick Jones was never Eddie Van Halen, Jimmy Page, Robert, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? He was never Keith and Mick. It wasn't that dynamic. He was just phenomenal songwriter who wrote great songs with Lou Graham. So my point is with Foreigner, 
I don't think anybody really like knew who was in the band. I don't think even most people could never name you the guys who were on the first foreigner record, all of them. It was more about the songs than anything. So to that end, I think that's one of the big reasons why they've been able to pull this off so well. But it's amazing to me because people have absolutely like, man, when I was a kid growing up, if, if a, if a band member changed a drummer, it was cat- catastrophic. You're like, oh my God, what's going on? <laughs> now you got somebody dropping dead and the next day it's like, well, our tech is playing for them. We're not missing a show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people seem to just roll with it. So it's a different era. It's a different mentality. I, 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 I believe in most cases that to say you actually saw a band, you got to have at least a couple of the key members still in it. But there are some examples, you know, Foreigner sounds really, really good what they do, but you can't say you're seeing Foreigner. Pantera, who just started up again, I've been calling that Pantera 2.0. Charlie and Zach have been super honest and saying, hey, it's not, how can it be a reunion? It's not. But you can't fault the fans for saying it's a reunion because they're only billing it as Pantera. Yeah, yeah, So there's some confusion there. So that's why I've been just going with Pantera 2.0, which is where I think they should have went with. But it's all case by case is the point. Understood. Uh, Let's dip our toes a little bit in that metal show. I'm not going to keep you here too long, too much longer. But uh, And I know it's hard to uh, (laughs) get you for one line and an answer because you're verbose and to your credit, by the way. Uh, Paul Stanley, you know, called the, you know, that metal show and, and, you know, going on Eddie Trunk's show. Uh, like going on Wayne's World, do you? And I'm not. I'm not letting my bros, Don and Jim, out to drive. <laughs> do you think that comment was directed at them? Because you know you're you're the you're the guy in the business for decades, and uh, those two guys are you know comedians, but huge music fans, and obviously added an interesting balance to that show and and to the credit of everybody involved. Do you think that that comment is, is about that or is it just directed at at you because of uh, your critique on kiss? I mean, why wouldn't he go on that show and, and and have a one-on-one with you? I mean, he's a grown man. He seems to not have a problem facing his critics on Twitter. Why wouldn't he have a sit down with you and, and just hash it out for good or bad? Well, I think it's, I, I, I think that maybe he think he would have thought at that, time or thinks even now that doing that would sort of validate us me whatever in some way i I don't know it's funny that you bring this up because i was just in a room with paul two days in a row in vegas and my god you would have thought from people who heard that we were in the same room you would have thought that Zelensky and putin got together (laughs) like my phone was just blowing up what happened what happened i've said repeatedly Kiss was my gateway band into this music, immensely important. Paul Stanley was always my favorite member of Kiss. I have no agenda against Paul whatsoever. 95% of what I've done and said related to Kiss and Paul has been positive. But there are some people that are very, very, very sensitive, and they, they want you to be on board with everything that's happening at that time, and I think that's kind of the way he's wired. But and and just to answer everybody's question, we didn't. I said very nice things about him at this event that I hosted in Vegas on Monday, but to, from the stage. But we didn't interact beyond that, and I wasn't about to do that. It wasn't about that. That's not what the night was about. But um, 
you know, I'm sure that comment at the time was just a shot. And I, I, honestly, we all took it as a compliment <laughs> because, I mean, we were Wayne's World. I mean, what are we kidding? I mean, we were. So I, I didn't have any, I didn't actually take that negatively at all. I was like, we all laughed at him, but like, yeah, kind of nailed it. So it really didn't bother us in the least. And sure, his fans would have loved to have seen him come on. It didn't happen, um, you know, but again, I, we did just fine hundred and something episodes. There's some people that it's just not going to be for everybody what we did or do. And that's fine too. So, uh, I, I never, it never bothered me in the least. And the Wayne's world comment was, uh, was, was actually pretty accurate. <laughs> I put a few questions out there for the listeners and, uh, I, I did get a couple of interest. Uh, one from Don J from New Jersey. Uh, this is back to TMS land. Uh, whose farts were more brutal during the taping of TMS? Uh, Don or Jim's? Definitely, definitely Don. <laughs> See, I feel like he's celebrating. Uh, and then... He should be because, you know, he's a vegetarian <laughs> and they're even more potent. There, there you go. And then uh, an, another listener, Jim F., also from Jersey. Uh, he wants to know why you can't get that metal show on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny, man. We, we got bombarded with, uh, when we were first off the air, people like, hey, why not go to Netflix or why not put it on HBO? And like, like yeah, like we can just do that. And, of course, those guys love to – wind people up and say it's my fault and put stuff on social media just to kind of, you know, mess with people. But, you know, I, I never say never and you never know what the future holds. So we'll see. Uh, another listener, I don't have her name here, but uh, also that metal show related. It says, uh, if you could ask him in his book on the Ronnie James Dio part, he forgot to list Rudy Sarzo as part of the band. The reason I bring this up is because back on that metal show for a couple of weeks, he kept getting messed up on his question and answer block, and it was always on Rudy. It got to be a joke between him, Jim, and Don. I think it's something funny from the past. So anyway, is there any any story about that? I'm not familiar with the excerpt in the book, but is there some story there about uh, Rudy not getting uh, mentioned in the band when you uh, wrote about Ronnie James Dio? No, not at all. I love Rudy. I just saw him. God, I've known Rudy for 40 years. He's one of my favorite people. If it's not, well, a couple things. That first book, I, I don't remember the timeline, but I think my first book was done like probably almost 15 years ago. I don't, I don't know the timeline with Rudy and Dio, but was he in then? He might not have even been in the band at the time I wrote the book because he came in way later, if I remember. So he could have been excluded just because he hadn't done anything with them at the time that I wrote it, or he could have been excluded just simply because um, space or I forgot, I mean, which is entirely possible. It's funny, those books, which I'm very proud of and a lot of people love – they're obviously a little dated now, but the other thing is, is like people didn't like, I put playlists in there and albums and stuff and people pointed out, well, you left this song out and you left this, this album out. Well, yeah, because there was a space constraint. I, it said selected. So I couldn't put everything. And a really funny quick story was Sebastian Bach. When that book came out, my first one, he actually went out to this bookstore and bought it, which I appreciate. But he got pissed off, which I didn't even know, because when he wrote his book, he told the story about Axl Rose coming into my radio studio. And Sebastian was there that night. And I've always given Sebastian credit for making that happen, because he did. 
But he got my book, and when he looked at the Skid Row section, he was pissed off that it didn't list his solo records. And to the point that when he wrote his book and about the Axl Rose story, he just wrote in it, yeah, at some radio DJ show. And I was like so floored <laughs> by that because I'm like, dude, we've been friends 35 years, some radio DJ? <laughs> and then he confessed to me that the reason he did that is because at the time he wrote it, he was pissed off that I didn't include his solo records in my book. And I said to him, Baz, I didn't include any solo records. Like, look at the Guns N' Roses section. I don't list Snake Pit. I said, it's just the band, it's just the records that came out under that name. Well, I still, you know, <laughs> you know, Sebastian. <laughs> and we laugh about it now, but the point being is that, you know, the books weren't that comprehensive. And gosh knows, I've never had a problem. I love Rudy to death. So it was either he wasn't in yet at the time I wrote it, or it was just an oversight. One uh, big guest, your your sort of uh, end all be all on that metal show, and and we're getting getting close to the credits here, Eddie. So you can go off and enjoy the rest of your night. I appreciate you hanging out with me for so long. Uh, who's the end all be all guest that you had, and uh, you can just name it or give a little backstory on uh, that metal show or any of your radio shows. Howard Stern recently had Bruce Springsteen, and that really seemed to resonate with him. Paul McCartney. Do you have one of those? That I haven't had, that I'd like to, or that I did have? How about both? Um, I mean, I mean, when Axl Rose walked into my radio studio, that was a huge thing. And that's probably, God, already 15 years ago. But that was a huge, huge thing. I mean, that was, that was just nuts that that happened. And it created massive news and... That was really just before streaming was happening. So it, it, but there was social media, but it wasn't that prominent, but it still made the rounds around the world. And that was completely unplanned. So that was a huge moment. I, I think when we were doing TV, having, having had Brian Johnson for an hour was huge. Having, uh, Steve Harris sit with us for an hour was huge. Iomi, who I call the founding father, huge. So, so there were, there were those kind of moments that really jump out at me uh, as, as all, you know, major kind of landmark moments. The, the, the ones that didn't happen, Eddie Van Halen was always close and never happened. I had him on radio once on the phone, but for TV, and the one that people may not realize is that uh, we were super close on getting Jimmy Page in the last season of that metal show. And he didn't do it because he wouldn't do anything with the word metal in the title. Ah. <laughs> and the irony of that is that I did not want that metal show to be called that metal show. I argued against the name because of that exact reason. It was going to be limiting. What, what did you want he, to call it? If you didn't have that name, anything but he, 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 they, they submitted a list of like 20 names to me. And I looked at the list. I'll never forget it. And I was like, yeah, I'm good with anything but that one. And that one was the one they ended up calling. <laughs> do you, do you have one uh, that you can just off the top of your head that, that you think is heaps better that would avoid the conflict of losing a guest like, uh, Iomi? Well, if it would have just been that rock show. Oh, there you go. That I rock mean, show. anything. I mean, yeah. I mean, 
and it was an Iomi. We had Iomi. It was uh, Jimmy Page. Ah, apologies. Yes. Yeah, but but it was it was just I always even to this day I use rock because it's just it encompasses metal, but it's just a little broader umbrella. And I knew that we couldn't be too limited. I knew that we'd want to have Hart and Paul Rogers and all these guests on, and some of them might not get it coming on a show with metal in the title. We actually had those people on, and they got over it. Jimmy Page couldn't really process it and was like hesitant against it. So as a result, uh, we never had him, but we came really close in the last season. We even offered to change the show the night he was on, change the name of it. And uh, it's just we just couldn't get him to do it. Out of uh, all the bands that are out there, the Heritage Acts from the heyday, as as they you know maybe get close to riding out into the sunset. How long do you think these you know the Dawkins and the Kicks and the L.A. Guns and the other L.A. Guns and the you know the Piercy, the Rats, the Vinciel? What what do you think the, the what's the what's the uh, shelf life on these bands as these guys enter their their sixties and uh, then the next question follow up would be who do you think might take their spot if you can name one or two bands? Well, I think it's all case by case. It's all dependent upon how well these artists take care of themselves in their later years, how much they put into working on their craft and keeping it at a point that it's at least decent and you know, how, really how many of them hold it together look steven tyler is still out there singing in aerosmith when he can do it at 75 and still really really freaking good so he's a freak in that regard if if you mentioned kicks i mean steve whiteman's a really health conscious guy if steve continues to you know, be real thin and do all his vocal stuff that he does Steve could keep probably going for another five, 10 years easily. It's all case by case. It really is based on uh, how well you look after yourself, genetics. I mean, there's a lot that comes into it. So uh, um, there's some, you know, Tesla is still really, really good in my opinion. And Jeff is still great as a front man. So it's all, it's all, Case by case. Don Dawkin has had well-documented vocal issues. How much longer he can keep doing it? I, I mean, you don't know. If he turns it around and figures it out, maybe longer. If he gets worse where he can't sing at all, then maybe he folds the tent. So that's why I don't think it's a blanket thing. And and I think it's, you know, the 80s guys could have another good 10 years if they really have it together. It's the 70s guys that are on a, sure. I think, year-to-year basis at this point. As far as, you know, and I get that question a lot, like people worry like, okay, well, where's the successor when these bands go away? I I think that um, I do believe those voids will be filled. They may not necessarily be with bands that people love today that loved, if they loved Dokken or White Lion or Kicks, these might not be their cup of tea, but that's why those bands end up becoming classic rock and then oldies if you will as people get older and that's why new generations discover new music i mean look at what ghost has done in a remarkably short period of time in terms of popularity look at what um greta van fleet has done becoming an arena act and they're in their 20s uh the struts are a band that i like a lot that i I think they have a they're the one band that has a bona fide rock star in my opinion fronting them so there there are i love rival sons i mean so there are bands it's just that i find a lot of people are especially around my age are kind of locked into the era they grew up in and they don't 
keep an eye on new stuff and they immediately discount anything that's new. And I think that's where the problem lies. So those people are just going to fall off and continue living in the era they choose to live in, at least musically. And there will be bands, I mean, Avenged Sevenfold, not a new band, but an arena act that's about to start up again, Five Finger Death Punch. They're basically an arena act now. So there are bands, Shinedown, basically an arena act now. There are bands that are coming up and have built a career for the last 15, 20 years that maybe could be uh, could 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 be still standing 30, 40 years from now. We just don't know. That metal show, I, I actually happened to be on it, and I want to see if you can remember. I, I, I was on Stump the Trunk, and it was uh, season 11. It was with Blotzer, LA Guns. It was uh, with Steve Riley and Phil Lewis. Interesting thing, when I was kind of scanning it, I didn't watch the entire episode, but I believe the conversation was, you know, Blotzer, they weren't doing Rat at the time. And I think this was right before he went out doing the Rat Experience. And then uh, L.A. Guns, it was, oddly enough, Phil and Steve Riley, because I think Tracy was out doing his own thing. And there was kind of, they were kind of talking about, you know, the multiple versions of these bands out there because, you know, the guys can't get along, couldn't figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, ironically now, you know, Phil is back with tracy and riley's doing his own thing but the 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 stump the trunk question was uh, what was the song that lita wrote uh the name of the song that lita wrote for her mother do you know the answer to that one or can i stump you twice (laughs) (laughs) all right eddie just so you know i slipped your wallet into the box of junk yes that means one lucky winner has a chance of receiving four whole dollars and a crumpled (laughs) up receipt from white castle (laughs) folks you know what time it is Oh, really? Yeah. That may be the next question, so... Yeah, what? <laughs> What's your name? You want all three? Yeah. Troy Patrick Farrell. So, buddy, Troy Patrick Farrell. Give him a hand. Oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Troy's in about 75 bands. Tell us what's going on. He just started a, rat, a new rat. Yeah. Yeah, you're in a new, new version of rat. And LA Guns Mach 4. Uh, I'll be out with uh, Bullet Boys this summer on that uh, America Rocks. Okay, Hookers and Blow with Dizzy Reed. Hookers and Blow, yeah. Actually, that's where I usually start off. Nice. All right. Well, you're here to stomp Eddie. Jim's doing his own fan. show over here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just listening. Welcome to the show, guys. All right, check it out, Eddie. Let's, let's see if we can stump you. What song was written for and dedicated for Lita Ford's deceased mother? Oh, 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 oh. It's just her name. It's her name. Um... Oh, damn it. it. I'll give you a hint. It's a girl's name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Can you give me the first letter? No, no. Yeah, because they'll get it right away, right? Yeah. Oh, it's right there. It's going to be so lame if oh, you miss that. Shut up! <laughs> No stopwatch on this, man? I know. It sucks when you know, but you can't remember because it's the chorus of the song. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut up, Jim. I'll give you a hint. There's a girl in New Jersey that we know, and she has the same name. (laughs) That's a good hint. Five seconds. It's so easy. You're, You're overthinking it. One, two, three, four, five. Not even a guess. Very close to Lita. I know. Lisa. 
Oh, shush, I know. Damn it, I yeah, forgot. You know. Come on I out, know. Jennifer. It's the chorus of the Mrs. Ford. Come on out. Jeez. All right. All right, Troy. Uh, what? It's got Velcro. So agonizing. Primal Rock Rebellion. This is Adrian Smith's new band, the side project. It's ah, great, man. Very cool. Good disc. Huge. Thank awesome, you. man. Thanks for having me. It's so agonizing when you know but can't remember. Like that hint I gave you, the girl from New Jersey, know. right? Who's Lisa from Jersey? <laughs> oh, maybe it never met her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> was the song that Lita wrote, uh, the name of the song that Lita wrote for her mother? Was it Lisa? There you go. Yeah, you got it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was funny when uh, when you didn't have the answer. And then, you know, Jim and Don just bust your balls. And yeah, uh, it, it is great. So uh, we can't see that metal show except for, you know, online, YouTube. But you can see it uh, this uh, Friday, I believe, at Dingbats in uh, Clifton, New Jersey. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I don't, by the way, I don't know what goes online and what doesn't. Sometimes people put episodes up there. Sometimes they get pulled down. Sure. Sometimes there's extras. So I don't know. I would love to see there be a real home for the old shows because I think it's interesting to see, you know, how things have changed for some of these bands and since those episodes were shot. But what we do and what we're doing on Friday is something we've done for years. It's not the TV show. It's just the three of us at a dive bar that we love and we know the owner of. And it's in Clifton, New Jersey. It's called Dingbats. And about 10 years ago, when we were still doing the show, he had this idea around Christmas time to do a party and just have the three of us host it, put some local bands on. And amazingly, it's become a thing. I mean, people really enjoy it. They look forward to it. It's kind of like a ring in the holidays sort of deal. And the three of us just go down there and we hang out and we have some beers with people and we watch the bands and it's just turned into like a really fun night uh, for everybody here locally in New Jersey. So we'll be doing it again this Friday. And it's also fun because Don, myself, Don and Jim, we actually don't see each other that often at all. And it's not for any reason except for the fact that everybody's busy doing their respective stuff. You know, Don doing comedy, Jim doing comedy, me all over the place doing what I do. So we don't we don't get to hang out nearly as much. So we always will get dinner before this and catch up a little bit, and then we'll have you know we'll have a fun time there with uh, some of our friends and people that used to watch the show. So it's just a good night. But I never want to mislead people into thinking like it's us shooting the show or doing the show again. It's not that at all. It's just a just a night to hang. Sure. Make sure you get across the street to Dingo's to get the broccoli cheese bites from Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that, the, we're both those places. We love Freddie; he's the best. Yeah, he's a great dude. Uh, all right, so I, I think we we made it to the finish line. Uh, one last question: uh, Forty years will be next year. You've had some, uh, you know, some blowouts, some parties, the twenty fifth and the thirtieth, and some little roast and video compilations put together. Uh, what what do you have planned, if anything, for the fortieth? And and why why not? I mean, a better place. What is a better place other than in Vegas? I mean, it's your second home, and I feel like you're getting closer to 50% here versus over there than you were you know, a year and a half or two years ago. Uh, we've got a great club here in town, Counts Vamped, that I think would love to host it. Your rock star buddies are in town. Uh, I, I mean, why not do the blowout for 40 in Las Vegas? Well, you preach to the choir there because I would love to do that. I mean, when I did 25, 30-year radio anniversaries, the bulk of that time at that point was all based in New York City. So it made sense to do that stuff in New York City because that was really more celebrating 
more of those years. But in the last 15, it's obviously been way more national because Sirius XM. So I can literally do it anywhere. And Vegas is a one for me. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a part-time resident there, still, still primary in New Jersey for now. But, uh, I, you know, I'll, I have more friends there than anywhere else. There's a great scene there, as you know. I love Vamped. I just hosted a big party and helped put together a big party for Chris Angel this past Monday night. And he's got a theater, and he and I have talked about doing some things. So I really don't know, and I don't know when it'll happen or where. But first of the top of the new year, i got to really start putting my head, my head around it and see the best way, place to do something. And I really want to, if I do it, the first two were really like some cool things. Like for 25 years, Judas Priest played a private show. For the 30th, Ace and Peter played together for what was the only time at that point. So there's some really cool, amazing things that have happened and i'd love to get a band or an artist willing to kind of do like a holy shit moment like that to kind of headline it and then build it out and then that'll kind of dictate where i do it and how i do it and if nothing like that comes together then it might just be like something real simple like call danny and Corey over at vamped and say hey let's do a night and see who shows up so could be anything i haven't thought about it yet but i will in the first you know early in the new year and, and figure out how we're going to do it eddie trunk sirius xm faction talk 103 and uh that metal show and i'm uh I, i'm uh giving you the new name as the uh the the lone rock and roll historian all right that's it because i think you're the only one really flying the flag you've got the uh you got the roots deep, deeply rooted into into rock and roll, heavy metal, hard rock, whatever you want to call it. And uh, for uh, I speak on behalf of my listeners and all of your listeners. We appreciate you, Eddie, and I appreciate you coming on this, that, and the other radio show here at Dirty Radio FM Channel Two, Dirty Radio Classics. You are uh, golden in my book, and and I appreciate your time and the insight. And uh, and I, I just appreciate you, man. Thanks. Oh, uh, Troy, very kind of you. I appreciate it. It's always good to catch up with you. It's it's good to see you when I get to vegas and hopefully will again soon and best of luck with the show and again thanks for having me i appreciate it absolutely real quick how, how did we do did, was it okay was it painful no okay. you, get, you kidding me i talk for a living you get me up and i can talk forever as you can hear right on i just have to uh yeah you did all the heavy lifting so i just got to put another dime in the jukebox and watch eddie go eddie thanks so much man have a great evening and uh, go giants yeah take care buddy Cheers, thank man. you all righty bye there goes Eddie Trunk uh, from SiriusXM. Wow, and I'm super stoked to have had him on this show. I myself need a uh, nice ice, uh, cold water, or uh, AKA Natty Light, and let's spin some more. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk. No, I'm not. From That Metal Show and SiriusXM Radio's Trunk Nation. I'm fixing cars. There's somebody else on the line. Whoever's on this line, you are tapping into a line, and you're, it's a problem, and it will be investigated. I suggest you do terminate now. You sound like a dick. And you are listening to this, that, and the other. You're doomed to wait you. On Dirty Radio Classics. It's a dumb suggestion. Have you ever met a single person in your life that enjoys paying taxes? No, no one does. If you can't sleep at night because you have a huge problem with the IRS 
I've got some free advice for you. This service is strictly limited to individuals that owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes. And if you qualify, we can guarantee that you won't be writing a big fat check to the IRS or our services cost you nothing. The first 100 people that call today will get a free tax consultation worth $500. Stop worrying about your IRS problem. We can help you, we promise. Call the tax doctor right now. I mean right now to learn more. 800-664-1204. That's 800-664-1204. Hey, it's Jizzy Pearl from Love, Hate, and Quiet Riot. You're listening to This, That, and the Other on Dirty Radio Classics. 